Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today on Weird House Cinema, we are going to be talking about the 1975 satanic cult melt movie, The Devil's Reign, a movie that I first saw... Oh, I'd say somewhere between 13 and 15 years ago. Uh, and uh, I didn't remember much about it, except there is a famous melting sequence at the end of this movie. And my memory was that it goes on and on and on and on. And wow, was that uh, impression ever validated by rewatching this? This is like the the godfather of melt movies. <laughs> it is quite a melt movie. If you are into films that depict the generally unrealistic liquefaction of the flesh, uh, the, the most, I guess, famous mainstream example of this being either um, the, the Wicked Witch of the West melting or the, mm. all the Nazis melting at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, both fine examples in their own right. Uh, but you can definitely get deeper into the weeds. I do greatly enjoy the Nazi melting in Raiders. But one difference I want to point out is that in Raiders, uh, it seems that uh, when like the SS agent melts and the, it melts like a candle, they attempted to do that in some some biologically accurate color schemes. So he basically melts in like blood and viscera kind of colors. Mm -hmm. The melting in this movie is the full box of crayons. It's just whatever color you want. We, you know, we're, we're green, blue, purple, pink, everything's in there. In this movie, and we may, we'll probably discuss this a bit more, we may to some degree try to make sense of it, but I don't think any real sense can be made of it. But in this movie, if you are a devout Satan worshiper, you get to exchange your fleshly body for a body that is made of multicolored wax. Yeah. And, and like not only just solid wax, but also liquid wax. So if you were shot with a gun, 
you will bleed multicolored wax. If you are melted by rain of either divine or infernal origin, not sure which direction it actually yeah, we'll is, is going in. That. Yeah. It, at any rate, it will melt you like multicolored candles. And it's uh, so, yeah, they're not even trying to, to to make it seem like this is an, an actual organic process. This is something psychedelic and weird and just straight up 1970s. You know, most movies that depict people making a covenant with Satan uh, d- depict more enticements. So, uh, you know, you, you make a deal with the devil, you get uh, fame, power, pleasure, riches, all that stuff. In this movie, the cultists don't really seem to get much of anything in the way of uh, power and riches and pleasure. It seems like, well, you get to become made of wax. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> well, I think Corvus, our, our cult leader, he, he does in the flashback to 300 years ago, he's telling the the other uh, cultists, uh, in this kind of, you know, very um, pilgrimy setting. Mm-hmm. He's uh, like, well, you've gotten to taste the pleasures of the flesh. You, you, got, a, you got your earthly pleasures out of this, and now I will take you to the, to the hell. And that's the arrangement. <laughs> so it's implied they got to have some sort of earthly pleasures, but I don't know. They were, it's a pretty stuffy-looking lot, so it might have been rather mundane by, um, you know, 300 years ago status. These were not pleasures of the flesh by 1970s standards. No, what, what were the, the pleasures and power that were enjoyed by, like, pilgrim William Shatner that that really earned him the the wax hell of the future. Got to wear shorts or something, probably. <laughs> also, I wanted to point out, so uh, this movie is notable for being a, a, a 70s cheeseball satanic cult movie, but also for the melting sequences, but also for having a rather interesting cast. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll we'll get into that in a moment. But one of the cast members is Tom Skerritt. He's sort of uh, one of the heroes of the film. And I have to point out the Amazon Prime <laughs> landing page for the streaming version of this movie is a picture of Tom Skerritt sort of gazing off into the distance where he looks so much like a, a perfect cross between Leonard Nimoy and Josh Brolin. Do you see it? <laughs> yeah, it's a weird it's a weird image to try and sell this movie on. Um, uh-huh. It's kind of like anybody else, anybody who wanted to see this because of the, the the movie Satanism or the melting, they've seen it. Now we just want to sell people on like mid-70s Tom Skerritt handsomeness. Okay, Tom Skerritt is handsome. So I'll give him that. But also, I don't know if that's going to get people to watch. But okay, so maybe the, the image doesn't get you in. You'll hook them with the, the plot description, right? That's, uh, yeah. that's your in. The plot description of the movie here is, a man tries to save his family from a satanic cult ruled by an powerful preacher. <laughs> so, somebody didn't copy edit that. And it makes me wonder, what was the descriptor that started with a vowel before they changed it out to powerful? Was it originally ruled by an evil preacher? And then they were like, no, that's too on the nose. Let's change evil to powerful. But then they didn't change the article. Maybe it was all powerful. Ah. And then they're like, well, that doesn't hold up. He's not quite all powerful. That's right. But reasonably powerful, intimidatingly powerful. So it seems to me like uh, The Devil's Reign did not get very good reviews when it came out. It has since garnered some kind of retrospective uh, appreciation, uh, though a lot of reviewers have said it's kind of boring or dull. I'm, I'm not going to say this is a good movie because it's not, but I did not find it boring. I was I was highly entertained. Yeah, I found that it really sucked me in. It, it has it's never dull on the screen. I mean, there's always some sort of interesting desert setting or strange satanic chapel or 
somebody's uh, making a strange facial expression or has been uh-huh. reduced to an eyeless cult member or, of course, for large stretches of the movie are actively melting. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so there's, there's a lot to, to keep your attention. Um, yeah, it's it's a you look back at the reviews and you know, nobody seemed to like it when it came out. It it uh, arguably had a, uh, a very devastating effect on the uh, career of the of the director. And we'll get into that. Um, but yeah, it's it it's also unlike just about anything else. So it definitely got stuck in people's heads. It uh, developed a cult following. Uh, for, for my money, and part of this may have been from sort of, ca- I think I may have caught parts of it for the first time on the Sci-Fi Channel back in the day. But this film feels like an episode of Night Gallery that was stretched out to feature length, and then also yes. had its plot surgically removed. It, yeah, it really has the feel of an, an anthology TV series. Like mm-hmm. it feels like an episode of one of those shows that doesn't have consistent characters. It's like a self-contained plot every time. Uh, And I wonder if that might have to do with the fact that it feels in some ways like the plot is really rushed, like it throws you right into the middle of the story without any Mm -hmm. explanation or introduction. So for the first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, you're really like, what is going on? It's really confusing. But then other parts of it feel totally padded out. There's so much just driving and looking around at things. The sense of confusion, though, is sustained throughout the entire picture. I'll give them yeah. that. Um, most of the picture you spend time, if you're, if you're giving it even a halfway dedicated viewing uh, like we did here, you, you're just going to find yourself continually asking questions that cannot be answered. And on one level, I feel like that's kind of accidentally fitting for a film about normal human mortals and encountering some strange cult from beyond the pale. You know, you're never you're never supposed to completely make sense of what evil wizards are up to. Uh, And and the movie itself has this strange dreamlike quality like it makes it does. It has dream logic. So Uh when you try and ask, like, why are people made out of wax and why are what's this about the devil's reign and is Uh this the devil's reign or is that the devil's reign like none of it really makes logical sense and it's very difficult to even attempt to stitch it together into such a a sensible uh, construction but it has that kind of dream logic where if you were to explain this as a dream people wouldn't doubt that you had this experience uh, uh, with you know your, your, your brain in pure dream mode that being said I don't feel like that that is an intentional result of the filmmaking here. (laughs) (laughs) I think, uh, I think we, we, we wound up here maybe due to some, um, some errors and adequacies, some what have you. Uh, I totally agree. It it has that feeling of, uh, each scene you're in, there are suddenly kind of mechanisms in play that you're like, what, 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 what's this (laughs) about an amulet now? I don't, (laughs) where did that come from? And Mm -hmm. why are they calling it the devil's reign? I, I don't know. But it just plows forward relentlessly. So, it, yeah, it has that, that dreamlike quality. Uh, should we do an elevator pitch? Go for it. If you, if you, if you can summon one. Okay, okay. Uh, for generations, the Preston family has been pursued by an ancient evil in the form of Ernest Borgnine. Finally, the satanic Borg has captured uh, several family members in his grip. Will Borgninian wickedness prevail or... Will the Prestons be able to liquefy the hooded minions of Beelzebub? Sounds pretty good. All right, let's go ahead and listen to the trailer audio. It's a, it's a pretty good trailer. There have been films about earthquakes, 
airplane disasters and blazing infernos. But there has never been anything like the Devil's Reign. His face. That wasn't your father. It was his face. Mother? Mother! Columbus! Damn you! They had no faces. The Devil's Reign. The 300-year search for the power to damn mankind is over. And the towering terror of the devil on Earth is now unleashed. Hundreds of souls held captive in an eternity of hell. Seize him! Possessed by the devil. You, my son, have defiled all that is holy. Mother, my God, my God! They become his worshippers and his demons. Before we go uh, uh, into the rest of the episode, if you want to watch The Devil's Reign before you listen to us discuss it more, well, uh, you can find it in a number of places. Severin Films put out a great restored Blu-ray of the movie, uh, and you'll find that wherever you get your films. It has loads of extras on it. This movie is also widely available streaming in, uh, in nice quality. Nice quality, but with questionable metadata. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's get into the, 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 the people uh, who brought this film to us. Uh, starting at the top here with the director, Robert Fuest, uh, who lived 1927 through 2012. British director uh, noted for his stylish 70s approach to genre cinema. Uh, in 1970, he had two films out, an adaptation of Wuthering Heights with Timothy Dalton in it and a thriller called And Soon the Darkness. We previously discussed him as director of 1971's The Abominable Dr. Fibes, which was oh. just a delightful horror film with style for miles. I did not realize this was the same director as, as Dr. Fibes, but that's interesting because Dr. Fibes, again, I mean, I, I greatly uh, enjoyed the campiness of The Devil's Reign, but Dr. Fibes is leagues ahead in terms of mm-hmm. like creativity and confidence and all that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um but uh, he followed that up with a 72 sequel, Dr. Fibes Rises Again. Uh, 1973's The Final Program, which was based on a Michael Moorcock novel and the star John Finch. And then came this film, which critics universally panned, and it may be the reason he mostly did TV after, after The Devil's Reign. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, sometimes it goes that way. All right, the writers on this. Um, a mysterious lot, uh, as if uh, shrouded in cultist hooding here uh we have gabe esso uh writer dates unknown though i believe he's still alive based on just some some poking around uh Mm -hmm. screenwriter with limited credits mostly tv and the most notable credits being for an episode of star trek deep space nine and three episodes of police woman 
on Memory Alpha, the um, Star Trek uh, wiki and general database, it mentions that he's uh, also a film historian. And indeed, I looked it up, he wrote 1968's Tarzan of the Movies, a pictorial history of more than 50 years of Edgar Rice Burroughs' legendary hero, as well as some old Hollywood biographies. The other writers are James Ashton, uh, dates unknown, this is their only credit, and Gerald Hopman, also dates unknown. This is also their only credit um, uh, for, for writing, but it was also an associate producer on this film and associate producer on 1981's Evil Speak. Okay, but it's time to talk about the cast because mm-hmm. th- that is one of the real reasons uh, people are going to tune into this movie apart from the melting. That's right. And yeah, starring in this bad boy is Ernest Borgnine playing Jonathan Corbis. Um, Borgnine lived 1917 through 2012. Academy Award-winning actor known for such films as 1955's Marty, 1981's Escape from New York, and 1972's The Poseidon Adventure. You might also remember him from 1979's The Black Hole or 1969's The Wild Bunch. I mean, really, he's one of those actors who pops up in every genre, every level of budget. And interestingly enough, he claimed that this movie was financed by the mob and that he was never actually paid. Whoa. <laughs> and I was curious, like, this was uh, something he made at a, like, a panel late in life. So I did look it up. And, well, and, and interestingly enough, The Devil's Reign was a Bryanston distributing company film. This is a, a, a company that existed from 72 through 76, which uh, I believe was uh, allegedly connected to the Colombo crime family. Other films include 74's Dark Star and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, wow. Dark Star. So that's John Carpenter. Texas Chainsaw Mm -hmm. Massacre is Hooper. So this is like horror royalty stems from at least alleged mob financing. I I did not really know that. laundering and all. Yeah. Maybe somebody who's more uh, informed on uh, the history of organized crime and cinema uh, can write in with details or a link or something about this. But uh, at any rate, uh, there's no denying Borgnine, though. yeah, great, great career. Later in life, he did a number of voiceover roles as well. He had that that wonderful, uh, memorable Simpsons guest role where he played a fictionalized version of himself. This was the uh, Friday the 13th parody, as I recall. Mm, okay. Uh, th- one of the things about Borgnine is I think a lot of us that, that came along either later in his career or more familiar with those later day pictures, we often think of him for his post-Marty uh, roles as likable everyman or his role as the lead character on a 60s television show like McHale's Navy. We, we think of him as like kind of a friendly, weird grandpa. Mm-hmm. Um, as such, uh, his villainous turn in this film may feel like an outlier, but uh, you, you start looking around in his, uh, his older films, especially his pre-Marty stuff, he did play a lot of heavies. So uh, ex- key examples of this are 53's From Here to Eternity, he gets in like a knife fight with Frank Sinatra. Uh, mm. And then there's 1955's Bad Day at Black Rock. But yeah, this is a guy who played a lot of heavies back in the day. I don't remember exactly what his character does in The Wild Bunch, but basically everybody in The Wild Bunch is bad. So I assume. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so nobody's going to accuse The Devil's Reign of being a serious acting showcase. But. I think sometimes it takes the context of a fairly bad movie to make you realize the raw charisma of a standout member of the cast. And for me, that's exactly what's going on with Ernest Borgnine here. Borgnine carries this movie on his shoulders. I think it 
probably doesn't work at all without him. And even though, you know, I'm sure when he did it, he saw this film as ephemeral silliness. He does not phone it in. He does not pull a Michael Rennie in Assignment Terror and phone in a performance. He shows up and he brings several friends and they're all his goat familiars. <laughs> Without Ernest Borgnine, I think The Devil's Reign wouldn't be 10% as entertaining as it is. Yeah, I, I agree. He's great in this. Um, I'd read that filmmakers had at one point some interest in Vincent Price playing this role. Oh, that could have been fun too. But It could have been fun. I mean, Price is great and, and, and would have made this role his own but Borgnine is just an entirely different energy you know yeah um and i don't know there's something too about and i don't know how much of this is is them leaning into it once they knew Borgnine was their guy but like when we encounter um corbus and like cowboy mode kind of like mortal mode before yeah. we really know that he's a, an evil cult leader uh-huh. you know like that's there's a there's a physicality there there's a certain um uh, like rugged, almost swagger that that you're only going to get from somebody like Borgnine. He, I, I agree, actually. I mean, I always love Vincent Price, but I think this would be a lesser movie if it were Vincent Price because it would be more on the nose. And mm-hmm. I think Price would have played the role more conventionally evil. Borgnine's cult leader is very fun to watch because he is so uh, he's just beaming that huge grin and the, you know, the twinkle in his eye. And most of the time he's sounding very friendly until he edges over into absolute menace. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now he does famously turn into a goat man a bit in this film. (laughs) And I think one of the interesting things about it is it's good looking effects. I don't want to, it's not, this is not a situation where, oh yeah, he turns into a goat man, but it looks, looks crappy. No, it looks really good, but it, but it limits his ability to, to portray this natural level of um, unhinged cult leader charisma. Ernest Borgnine is biologically a cartoon character and uh, counterintuitively, by putting him in in devilish he goat makeup, they actually tone down his mm-hmm. <laughs> his visual charisma and his his weirdness. Like he looks less exciting and less weird in the goat makeup than he does with his just normal uh, human face. Yeah, great eyebrows in this picture too. Just crazy yeah. eyebrows. I love it. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. To a certain extent, our main hero is this character, Eddie Albert, who plays Dr. Sam Richards. He's kind of our, um, I guess he represents fringe science, the enemy of Satanism. I think it's interesting because this guy, like, at the very end, he sort of becomes the hero who defeats the cult. But up until the very end, I kept being like, oh, yeah, this guy, what's his deal? Like, he he does not read for 95% of the movie as the hero. He reads as, like, I don't know, he's a side guy who's hanging out with Tom Skerritt. And then suddenly he he's the guy who beats the bad guys at the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and doesn't seem to really risk much personally himself. Yeah. Like, he's not the one whose family is at the center of this. But uh, anyway, Eddie Albert, though, uh, uh, lived 1906-2005, Academy Award-nominated actor, best known for such films as 53's Roman Holiday, 62's The Longest Day, 72's The Heartbreak Kid, and, of course, TV's Green Acres, on which he starred. So uh, this is another case of, uh, of a notable actor who had he'd only just been nominated for Best Actor in 72. Uh, and he was in Disney's Escape to Witch Mountain the same year, 75. So mm-hmm. um, uh, you keep asking yourself with this movie, like, what are all these uh, these these actors doing out in the middle of the Mexican desert filming this uh, satanic cult movie uh-huh. on perhaps mob money? Maybe the money was good. I don't know. Uh, yeah. All right. And then uh, another case of this, we have uh, Ida Lupino in this uh, playing Emma Preston, the, the matriarch of the, the Preston family that is so uh, cursed 
in this. Uh, she lived 1918 through 1995, British-American actress, director, writer, and producer. She acted from the early 30s into the late 70s, uh, perhaps most notably in such uh, pictures uh, from the 40s as High Sierra, Ladies in Retirement, The Hard Way, and Pillow to Post. But she's also notable as a director and writer. I've seen her described as the most prominent female filmmaker of fifties, uh, the 50s Hollywood system. And she was the first woman, apparently, to direct a noir film, 1953's The Hitchhiker. She directed and starred in 1951's On Dangerous Ground. And other directorial credits include 53's The Bigamist, 1950's Outage. And she also directed a lot of TV, including two episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, nine episodes of Thriller, and one episode of the original Twilight Zone, that episode being 1964's The Masks. So I was very excited about Ida Lupino going into this, but unfortunately, I just can't say much about her acting performance because for 90 percent of the movie, she's just a rubber mask. Like she, yeah. <laughs> She's the rubber mask with the yeah, we will talk more about what the cultists look like, um, but she's the mask with the, the black eyes in a black hood just going, ah, you know, join us, son. Uh, but I will say she does a very good job of melting. And if I remember correctly, <laughs> the, she melts multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This is also a Shatner movie because oh. William Shatner uh, himself plays Mark Preston, uh, born 1931. I mean, what you can what can you say? This is, of course, Captain James T. Kirk from the 60s Trek series and the various film adaptations of Trek. Um, this movie is from the space between the TV show and his return to the character on screen in 79. His other notable TV series include T.J. Hooker from 82 to 86. Of course, we have Tech War, both the <laughs> novel series that has his name on it and the TV adaptation with the music by Warren Zevon. The children uh, will have to learn about Tech War sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, he's also in two very notable Twilight Zone episodes, uh, Nick of Time from 1960 and, of course, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet from 63. Other pure genre film credits for Shatner include The Horror at 37,000 Feet, uh, this is a TV movie that I know you and I have talked about before, and I, you may have seen in full. Is this the one where he has to go battle an ancient druid curse in part of an airplane? Uh, well, just part of an airplane? <laughs> yes, yes, this is the one. Okay. Um, there's also 74's Impulse, 1966's Incubus, oh, yeah. and 1982's Visiting Hours. All right, so... William Shatner is one of the most goofed on actors of all time. You know, everybody loves to do gentle ribbing of his line delivery, you know, like making fun of him, but they still like him. Uh, I'm going to, in some ways, stick up for Shatner as a sometimes genuinely good actor. I think when paired with good written material and the right director, he's genuinely very good. So if you go back and watch like the Nicholas Meyer Star Trek movies, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Wrath of Khan, uh, Voyage Home, Undiscovered Country, uh, I, I think in those Shatner is actually excellent. But when people do the parody impressions of him affecting strange dramatic pauses and choosing which word of a sentence to emphasize almost at random, you know, you know, all the weird line readings and stuff. I think stuff like the devil's reign may be exactly what they have in mind because he's like that in this movie, strange pauses and sentences that don't make any dramatic sense, gazing off into the distance and moments that don't really earn that for any reason, generally odd line readings. So I, I defend Shatner, not just as camp. I think he can sometimes be really great, 
But this movie is much more of a showcase of his camp side. And in my opinion, his performance is very funny. Yeah, I'm not a huge Shatner fan, but I would say I will say that I did enjoy him in this. I don't know. I don't know if it's it's something about him playing kind of a failed hero and kind of a satanic weasel. Um, You know, there's this outer strength and bluster to the character, but ultimately there's this inner weakness and how and hollowness that ends up kind of devouring him. So I don't know. It felt maybe it just felt enough against type um, with this character that I enjoyed him more. Hard to say. I don't know if this makes any sense, but you really it just comes through that he's really enjoying the uh, his shirtless torture scenes with the satanic cult. <laughs> he does have a lot of shirtless uh, uh, torture scenes in this. But I feel like any fan of Star Trek should also watch The Devil's Reign. You, you, uh, you've seen Shatner from both sides now, and so you you understand uh, from up and down. All right, let's let's uh, mention some other folks here. Uh, Keenan Wynn plays Sheriff Owens. Not a major character, but he pops up here and there. He's the, he's the sheriff. He's the authority figure that uh, ultimately doesn't pull through. Uh, lived 1916 through 1986, American actor with tons of credits across the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. He voiced Captain Cully in 1982's The Last Unicorn, and he played Colonel Bat Guano in 1964's Dr. Strangelove, among many other roles. You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> Let's see. Tom Skerritt, we already mentioned, he plays Tom Preston. This is Shatner's brother, right? Yes, I think so. I don't know if they made that fully clear, but yes, uh, he, yeah, yeah, he, he's the brother. What else could he be? He's not, he's not <laughs> William Shatner's father. <laughs> there is a family photo that I guess kind of establishes things early on, but right. um, yes, Skerritt was born 1933, TV and film actor with credits going back to 62, but I imagine for many of you, Hey, he's Dallas from 1979's Alien. He's Viper from 1986's Top Gun. He also had roles in 97's Contact, 89's Steel Magnolias. Other credits include Harold and Maude, The Dead Zone, MASH, Poltergeist 3, and, hey, the Christopher Lambert chess movie, Night Moves. So, Scarrett is, in a way, the, the hero of this movie. I would say he's, you know, he's like the other guy there who defeats the cult at the end alongside uh, Eddie Albert. Nevertheless, I'd say his part does not have much to it. Uh, he does what is required of him. He's ruggedly handsome in that 70s way. He throws a good punch. Uh, but I think, I, from what I recall, he actually has rather few lines, it seems like. He's not a very dialogue-oriented character. Yeah, he's, you know, he, he's more action. He's yeah. he's kind of this rugged Western kind of a hero, I guess. It's funny seeing him in a role like this, because I know Tom Skerritt actually did a lot. You know, he was a big star in his day. But for some reason, I primarily associate him with space because, like, the mm-hmm. main movies I love with him in there are Alien, where he's Dallas, uh, who's doomed, and In Contact, where he plays... Uh, sort of the bureaucratically entangled scientist who, you know, knows how to play politics, whereas Ellie Arroway does not. And uh, he, I think he's also doomed in contact. So he's like, <laughs> he's the guy who goes to die in space. Yeah. So in a way, it's it's kind of odd that Shatner and Skerritt don't have their roles reversed here. Uh, yeah, he interesting. Could, he could yeah. be more doomed if he, had, uh, if he had played the other brother. All right, now playing his character's wife, right? Playing Julie Preston mm-hmm. is... The actor Joan Prather, born 1950. Um, she was only active from, I think, 72 through 89. In addition to some TV roles, she appeared in The Single Girls from 74, Big Bad Mama from 74, 
smile from 75, rabbit test from 78, and take this job and shove it from 81. Allegedly, she introduced one of her co-stars on, on this picture to Scientology, that co-star being John Travolta. Okay, so we can get to John Travolta in a second, but I, I'm going to say, I, I don't want to be, be be mean, but Joan Prather feels to me like she is on another planet in this movie. <laughs> I don't know if her character is, maybe it makes sense because she's a character who like has psychic visions and ESP, uh, but she seems like she's in a trance almost the whole time, very, not very present. Yeah, and and then there's this, she, she does have, I think, a, an effective screen presence of like um dis- of great distress at times especially yeah. in the final moments of the film there's a real dark charisma to her that i think works and and leaves leaves you on a unsettling note as you leave the theater yeah uh but okay so you brought up john travolta i knew he was in this movie and i was looking out for him while i was watching it and i didn't catch him i was like where <laughs> was john travolta thinking back on it and and watching some parts a second time i th- think maybe he's a guy that he's the guy that Joan Prather and Tom Skerritt fight in the house. Yeah, I think by the time we encounter him, he's already cultified, right? Right. Um, so he's got mask face. So he's not as clearly recognizable as, as Travolta. Yeah, I think I read that after Travolta rose to fame, they like in, they, they cut a scene back in that had a, had some uncultified John Travolta. Uh, mm. to try and capitalize on it, but that's not present in the cut that we watch, so I can't speak to it. Bummer. But yeah, this is John Travolta playing Danny. Doesn't even have a last name. Uh, Travolta. Zuko is his last name. Is it? Zuko? <laughs> no, that's his character from Greece. He's oh. got the same first name, though. <laughs> Danny Zuko. Okay. Uh, anyway, Travolta was born 54, and at this point in his career, yeah, he was super young. He'd done some bit TV roles before, but this was his first film. Uh, he'd, he'd, of course, follow this up with some big hits. Uh, he did Carrie in 76, Saturday Night Fever in 77, Grease in 78, Urban Cowboy in 80, Staying Alive in 83. Of course, his career took a, a went on a noticeable slump after this, but then he came back big in 94's Pulp Fiction and was back on top of everything for the rest of the decade, really. Uh, for our purposes, I guess we have to mention 97's Face Off being ultimately a pretty weird film. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, his year 2000 magnum opus, Battlefield Earth. I think Face Off is a classic. One thing is people, okay, so it, it is an action movie, and I think it is primarily remembered as an action movie with, you know, the sort of slow motion gunfight scenes and stuff. But mm-hmm. people forget how strange the science fiction premise of of that movie is there's like a a a prison at the bottom of the ocean and there's face (laughs) transplants and all that it's a like a profoundly odd uh film uh battlefield earth i don't know what you can even say about that you got to get some man animals in here to fix this (laughs) all right let's see who else uh, do we need to talk about here um we have a character named john that shows up he's like the the doddering old old man that um just you know, talks about uh, he came here and he didn't have faces and uh, melted. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A, a fun role. Uh, you need a character like this in a, a cult supernatural film. But uh-huh. this is played by Woodrow Chambliss, who lived 14, uh, 1914 through 1981, mostly a TV actor. But he was also in the 1970 desert horror film uh, Gargoyles from 72. 
Uh, you know, I haven't seen it, but I've been interested in checking out Gargoyles for Weird House. So it's a 1972 made-for-TV monster movie with creature effects by Stan Winston starring Bernie Casey. Yeah. It, I haven't seen it in forever. It's a film that when I see a clip from it, I don't know, I think it, it's a film that I caught on Sci-Fi or maybe A&E. Mm-hmm. God help us back in the day. <laughs> uh, by, by, like, it's a film that if I see a clip from it, it makes me feel like I'm watching TV indoors on a nice Sunday afternoon and I should really be outdoors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I you know? know what you mean. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, maybe it, it requires some revisiting. I, I, I recall some fabulous full body gargoyle shots, uh, uh, suits that are shot just in like full light. Sorry, I was looking up because I was trying to remember who else was the actor I knew who was in it. Scott Glenn is also something oh, in yeah, it. Right. As I said, I haven't right. seen it. But yeah, Bernie Casey plays a gargoyle, apparently, and Scott Glenn's in there somewhere. <laughs> All right, speaking of in there somewhere, uh, we also have Claudio Brook <laughs> in this uh, this picture playing a preacher. He's essentially a, a witch-hunting preacher who burns the Satanists 300 years ago in a flashback. That's right. Uh, a stern witch finder we can all look up to, uh, except he, he, he betrays our, our, our main character's ancestors. They're like, hey, if we bring you the satanic cult, you'll spare us. Right. And he's like, sure. And then they do. He goes back on his word. He's like, well, I'll spare you as as far as like you can go to heaven, but I still have to burn your bodies. Yeah, your bodies did a lot of bad things like wearing those shorts. So you're, you're going up in flames. Exactly. So you never, never trust a guy who has a Heinrich Kramer tattoo. <laughs> uh, Claudio Brook, who I think I've mentioned, even though we haven't talked about a, a Claudio Brook film before, a uh, fantastic Mexican actor with varied credits extending back through the mid-1950s. Uh, his credits range from art films and serious dramas to El Santo pictures and bizarre horror films. Uh, you know, we'll come back to him again someday. Uh, uh, he would, after this, though, he would go on to star in the notable Mexican satanic film uh, Alucarda from 1977. Uh, Dracula backwards, yeah. Oh, well, maybe it is. A Dracula backwards. Yeah, yeah. This is not the only film that has used Alucard as Dracula spelled backwards. In fact, uh, wasn't the undercover vampire in the flashback in Santo and the Treasure of Dracula called Count Alucard? Am I wrong about yeah, that? Yeah, I believe you're, you're right on this. Uh, now, I haven't seen Alucard uh, yet. Uh, it's on my list because it's it's held up as supposed to be a very good uh, possession film. I don't think it actually has anything to do with with uh, with vampires. So I don't know. Mm. Uh, more of a, a satanic movie uh, than it is a, a vamp movie. So uh, one thing I read about this movie, I think this might have even been on this Wikipedia page, is that some writer somewhere uh, pointed out that this is, this is really a cult movie because it's about a cult. It's a cult movie in the colloquial sense. It, you know, it has a you know sort of ironic following, uh, but also involved a, an actual cult leader. I don't I don't know if that's a correct way to categorize what Anton Lavey was, but Anton Lavey was involved in making this movie. Yes. Um... He he has a credit as playing a high priest. You see him in a golden goat helmet. And then he was also a technical advisor. <laughs> to, like, tell them how satanic magic actually works. Yes, this is the way made-up satanic magic works. Uh, allow yeah. me to show you. Uh, so Anton LaVey lived 1930 through 1997. He was the, the then high priest of the Church of Satan uh, and, then, and also author of the Satanic Bible and some other books. Uh, I'd say, you know, an interesting cultural figure, a born showman with a knack for the keyboards. 
I, I suppose we're, uh, t- yeah, to infer that he in- advised the director on some of the finer points of, of fake Satan worship in this. Um, and I believe his wife at the, at the time is also in the picture in the background as part of the, the, the main satanic sequences. Uh, he was also an advisor on 1974's Lucifer's Women, 1977's The Car, in which James Brolin battles a satanic car, uh, 1983's Dr. Dracula with John Carradine, and 1989's Charles Manson Superstar. Apparently, he had no involvement with 1968's Rosemary's Baby, despite rumors to the contrary. You know, I don't know much about Anton LaVey, but I maybe I'm wrong. I thought his version of Satanism was not one that, like, believed in in actual like the magical efficacy of rituals or anything so i'm a little confused about what the technical advising role would be here yeah i don't i don't think this film is a really an accurate depiction of levian satanism or anything um but uh you know maybe it was just more a situation where he's like hey i hear you're making a, a satanist movie don't you think you should hire somebody like me to yeah. uh hang out on set and uh advise you on a couple of things i can loan and you some costumes yeah yeah, maybe it's as simple as that. I've got all these robes. All right. Well, but this is a melt movie. And you can't talk about a melt movie without talking a little bit about the special makeup effects. And that's where Ellis Berman Jr., a.k.a. Sonny Berman, comes into play here. He lived 1935 through 2020. Um, again, this movie is all about wax-based Satanists spurting wax and melting in big puddles of wax. And um, the lead on all of this was Ellis Berman Jr., I've read that uh, they were having to basically invent ways to do all of these effects on the fly, but they also had days upon days to produce them, uh, which is why I guess we have so much compelling footage of people melting. Uh-huh. And yeah, the, the end results are pretty mesmerizing. Uh, Berman's previous work included 1970's Beneath the Planet of the Apes mm. and 1972's Gargoyles. Okay. And uh, I, and I, I do have to stress that I think uh, it's my understanding that uh, that the work of people like Berman aren't necessarily completely reflected in like IMDb credits. Uh, a lot of times they're on crews for stuff and they're just not they're not credited for for what they they did. But uh, he definitely followed this up with work on uh, 1976's The Man Who Fell to Earth oh. uh, and Return of a Man Called Horse, 77's Empire of the Ants and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 78's Matilda, which is a boxing kangaroo movie starring Elliot Gould. Um, last time I checked, you could stream that via the Criterion channel. Wait, I just realized Empire of the Ants. That's Bird Eye Gordon. Yeah, yeah. So we, we got a Mr. Big connection here. Uh, 79's Prophecy, the bear movie. Uh, 83's Space Hunter, 84 Starman. He did the. He was involved in the sloth makeup for 1985's The Goonies. Mm. And he also worked on 1985's Howling 2. Oh, and then as far as Trek goes, uh, he worked on Star Trek's Five, First Contact, Oof. Insurrection, 50 episodes of Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and Nemesis. Uh, Star Trek Five, that's all you need to know. <laughs> um, according that's to That's not Obed, fair. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that Ellis Berman Jr. Wait, wait, which one's Five again? Five is the really bad one. The one where, like, they meet, uh, what is it? I think they meet Spock's half-brother, and he's like, an, uh, he, he's like, you know, Spock is all logic, and his half-brother is all emotion, and he's this, like, empathic cult leader, essentially, who, uh, who you know, gets people to connect to their pain, and he's like, give me your pain, and Shatner has a great monologue in it. It's not actually great, where he's like, well, I need my pain. I won't give you my pain. Our pain makes us who we are. Uh, and then at the end, they go to a place in the middle of the galaxy where 
God lives essentially, but then it's oh, not yes. really God. It's like the Wizard of Oz, and it's revealed to just be some kind of alien. Oh, and they blast him. Yeah. All right. Okay. That one. That one does ring a bell now. It's not good. It's widely considered one of the worst Star Trek movies. But like you say, we can't uh, we can't blame Berman for this. Uh, according to his obit, his company Cosmic Kinetics also was involved in building the Terminator robot for the Terminator and the creation of ALF. Hmm. All right. And then finally, the music credit here goes to Al DeLore, uh, who lived 1930 through 2012. Uh, I thought the music in this film was quite effective, kind of a, a general ambiance of weird, unsettling instrumental drift and occasional cacophony uh, that's kind of fitting for that 1970s night gallery vibe. Mm-hmm. Al DeLore was a Sessions keyboardist who worked mostly in pop, surf, rock, and country. He was also a Grammy award-winning producer who produced a number of non-satanic hits for Glenn Campbell in the 1960s, including Gentle on My Mind, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Wichita Lineman, and Galveston. He, uh, uh, he was a Sessions musician on the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds in 66. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, and then he also did the score. He has, I think, 11 composition credits on IMDb, but this is really the only film that stands out, certainly to me. Uh, and as far as I know, this soundtrack has never been released uh, as, a, as an album in any format. Hey, some, uh, some boutique reissuer put, it, put this out on vinyl. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the melty effects in this film, there's so many great directions you could go with that vinyl. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, we ready to talk about the plot. Let's do it. So it begins uh, with a bunch of, you know, infernal wailing that it kind of sounds like the Siberian well to hell hoax tape. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I've made that comparison on, on the show before about as you know, general audio montages of wailing. Uh, but then we fade to Bosch and we start seeing uh, <laughs> scenes from uh, the, the triptych of The Last Judgment. So, you know, a little hellish vignettes. Uh, there's a general survey of unpleasant imagery from paintings. You got Birdman with black eyes and cauldrons for helmets, eating naked sinners, along with, you know, more, uh, you know, now that's what I call moaning and lamentations and people screaming, let me out of here and so forth. Uh, and then the actual action opens with an image of a crucifix. There's a painted uh, wooden Christ hanging from the cross and the shadow of a human hand cast across the figure. And then the sound of a rolling storm in the background with rain and heavy thunder. And we reveal a woman looking nervously out a window into the night as the rain pours down. And this is Mrs. Preston, played by Ida Lupino. She clearly has tattered nerves. She's Something is worrying her greatly. And a man named John brings her some tea, but she spills it. She's so she's so frazzled. Uh, John, did you take John here to be like their butler, sort of? He wasn't dressed like a butler in a Victorian uh, set. I, I don't know what he was. He he just brought them tea. Yeah, this is the old man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, because he's not her husband. Because no. we're about to to meet him. Yeah. So yeah, he's just kind of. I don't know if he's supposed to be an uncle or what. No, maybe he's an uncle. Yeah, okay. I don't know. He's, I don't know. He's some guy. They just call him John. Um, Finally, uh, somebody arrives at the door, and it is Ida Lupino's son, Mark, played by none other than William Shatner. So he comes in from out of the rain. As we alluded to earlier, this movie really throws you right into the middle of the action with no explanation. And I could explain with hindsight of having seen the rest of the movie what happens in the scene, but I think if I did, it would not really capture the level of randomness and confusion you feel as a first-time viewer. So I kind of want to do a little beat-by-beat here. All right. So Shatner comes in the door. Mrs. Preston greets him with relief. She calls him Mark. She says, well, Mark says, no sign of him. Odd inflection, like, was there a sign of somebody else or the truck? Uh, Shatner says, I got as far as Simpson's Bridge, or what's left of it. The river's about swept it away. And Mrs. Preston says, he couldn't have just disappeared. He couldn't. And Shatner says, he probably pulled off someplace to wait out the storm. And Shatner lifts the telephone from the hook, and he says, gazing off into the distance, ponderously and with surprise, it's still dead. 
Mrs. Preston says, I know. Shatner says, the winds knock the lines down. And Mrs. Preston says, I don't think so. And they start to argue. So Mark says, it's just the storm. And she insists, no, it's my dream. Night after night, it always starts the same way. It starts with a storm. And then your father... But Mark cuts her off. He doesn't want to hear this. He's heard it a thousand times. He insists that father is all right. He says there's, uh, you know, there's no way he got turned into a weird makeup effect. <laughs> and then the dog starts barking outside. So they go outside. John says, someone's here. And they all go to look. And then a guy staggers in through the rain, his shirt's torn open with, frankly, hilarious makeup. His eyes have been... Like the area around his eyes has been replaced with a rubber mask that is sort of blended in to his skin with makeup around that. Uh, and his eyes are hollow, like there are not eyeballs in them. There's like sort of black cloth behind his eyelids. I think when I first saw this, it seemed like we were supposed to understand that he had been tortured or mutilated or something. But looking back on it now, I think maybe it's just that he has been mask faced by the cult. Yeah. Um... I I have to say I like the 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 effect they did with their like weird waxy faces and no eyes. Okay. Uh, with this kind of like red swelling around where the eyes used to be. Um I mean it's an, an obvious uh, makeup uh effect, but it also it made me think about how well nowadays and certainly for decades now the go-to for this effect is put some black contacts in those eyeballs. Right. And yeah. uh and you know that can look really good. But it's also been so done to death, like it's it's done in in so many movies of varying budgets. It's done by just teenagers at the mall. Yeah. Uh, so it's 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 kind of lost a lot of its impact. So it's kind of neat to see something that goes in a different direction, I guess, before those contacts were available. I'll take that. I'll take that. OK, so uh, Shatner says, Dad, and Miss Preston says, Steve. And the, the guy staggering in says, the book. Corbis! And Mrs. Preston says, oh, God, help us. And Mark says, where is Corbis? And boy, I I hope you like the word Corbis because you are going to hear people say it about 6,000 times. And especially Shatner will just punctuate every line he says with Corbis. And especially since it's one of those... It's like a kind of a funny sounding name. It doesn't necessarily, it might be a real name, but it doesn't sound like a real name. It sounds like the kind of name people make up for, for a fictional story without checking to see if anybody's actually named that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something made up on the fly in a Dungeons and Dragons session. Like maybe they originally named this character Corvus and then they're like, well, I don't know, it sounds too, too bird-like and he's a goat. Yeah. Uh, now that I say that, I'm sure Corpus is a real name. I don't know. It just it just doesn't have that feeling. But okay, so the, you know where is Corpus? So very very dramatic inquiry by William Shatner here. And Steve, the uh, mask faced man, says the desert, Redstone. He's waiting for the book. Give Corpus what belongs to him. And then he collapses on the ground and starts to melt. And Mrs. Preston says, "Don't go near him. Don't touch him." Uh, but he's like. I don't even know how to describe this. He looks like he's covered in melting wax crayon tumors. Yeah, I mean, it's gross and and it's certainly surreal, but also feels uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't. Uh, yeah, like you say, it's not they're not going for a realistic biological melting here. This is something else going on. Uh, and so it, it hits all the right notes. It doesn't. Um, it's not one of those things where you watch it and you're like, ah, this is this is fake. I mean, you know, it's 
not real. It's easy to suspend disbelief, uh, but it's, it's very gross. Uh, there's a strong element of body horror here. So the melting Steve starts uh, talking in Latin and Miss Preston repeats him. He's saying, in nomine satanis, in the name of Satan, that wasn't your father. And they argue about this. Shatner's like, it was his face. It was his clothes. But was it his face? We'll never find out. We never will find out. That's right. <laughs> so Miss Preston says, the book, the book, don't you see? My dream. It was a warning. They found us. Uh, so, again, this is the kind of like thrown into the middle of it quality that makes me think this is like an anthology TV episode. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the cold open on one. This is the teaser to be like, what is going on? And hopefully it will be explained later. Yeah, but it won't. Not not to, not to any <laughs> partially. Degree. It will be partially explained. Yeah. So everybody goes inside. We're treated to a long shot of the rain splattering upon the puddle of green and blue goop that was once Steve. Mm -hmm. And man, the, they are really banking on you enjoying looking at this because I went back and timed it. The shot of the goop is seventeen seconds long. <laughs> yeah, they really milk their their wax goop shots in this picture. I think Fulci I th would would approve. I think he yeah. he would he would say good notes on this. You should definitely let the camera linger over the gross things. Oh yes, the the Fulci ethos is oh oh is this is this a part of the body that's usually on the inside, but now it's on the outside. <laughs> Let's get a look at that. <laughs> Okay, so inside the arguing, the confusing arguing continues. Again, the viewer is like, has no idea what's going on. Miss Preston says, Corbus has your father. I tell you, it wasn't him, Mark. It wasn't him. Uh, and uh, so the the melting man had said Corbus was in Redstone, and they explained this is the old mining town, a godforsaken place. And then Mrs. Preston pries up a loose brick from the floor and reveals a secret compartment from which she removes an old book. And then she gives it to Shatner. She begs him to take the book to Corbus, and Shatner refuses. Uh, he says, I won't give the devil's man what he wants. Uh, and so they're, you know, they're like, well, we gotta be, we gotta do something. So, uh, Mark, uh, Shatner, Mark, the character goes and he gets a pistol out of a drawer and he says, I'll fight him on my terms, not his. And then Mrs. Preston says, uh, she like pulls out some, we can't even really see what it is. It's sort of off screen, but she's like holding something in her hands. And she says, Corbus can't harm you as long as you wear this amulet. <laughs> what? Sounds good, though. He's he's being he's going on a quest. All right. He, yes. He has a he's gun. Got, he needs a magical item as well. Magical item. So she gives him an amulet. No explanation of the amulet. Uh, then somebody arrives in a truck outside. Mark goes out to meet him wearing a rain jacket and a cowboy hat. So this is Shatner in a cowboy hat. And who is this supposed to be? I think maybe it's supposed to be the father. But Mark goes, he gets out to the truck and then he finds a doll pinned to the steering wheel. So there's nobody in the truck. It's just a creepy doll. Yeah. And then there's like a scream from inside, right? This is one of yeah. the, at least a couple of moments in the film where unseen cultists are just totally uh, uh, rolling high with their dexterity checks, with their stealth checks, because they can yes. just, they just move around unseen. They're like the dwarves in Phantasm. Yes. Uh, by the time you know they were there, they've already like blown up a car or something. You're 
Exactly right. So he hears commotion back at the house and he runs back in. He finds John hanging upside down from the ceiling. He's not dead. He's still like he cuts him down, but he's somehow they got him hanging upside down from the ceiling. The house is fully ransacked. His mother is missing all in a matter of what seemed like about 15 seconds. Like we Mm -hmm. looked at the goop in the rain longer than (laughs) Shatner was outside. It's true. Uh, But the old man, John, he's. He's sitting there recovering from his his experience, and he says, they had no faces, no faces. And then I think I think what uh, Shatner's character goes and makes sure the book is still in the in its hiding place. And yes. basically it's like, all right, I'm going to continue my next uh, phase of the quest. That's right. So he goes on the hunt for Corvus, and we are treated here to a good amount of padding uh, scenes of him driving around in the desert, standing next to the car and stuff. And eventually he arrives at Redstone. This is a, a desert ghost town with with an eerie New England-style church building. It's all boarded up from the outside. And Mark drives up, and he is greeted in the middle of the town by a laconic old cowboy played by Ernest Borgnine. And there's a, there's a, initially almost a kind of, um, you know, gospel story kind of miracle at the water pump. So Shatner is trying to work the water pump because he's thirsty, I guess, and nothing comes out but dust. And then Ernest Borgnine walks over and he's like, hey there. And he pumps the, the pump and it just gushes with water. Oh, and then Shatner tastes the water, but he says it's bitter and he spits it out. And then I wonder if, what you made of this. So he says it's bitter. He spits it out. Then Borgnine says... Sweet way to end a thirst, though, isn't it? And I didn't understand what this meant. Like, was he saying, I don't know, the water was bitter because it was poison and Borgnine is praising the exquisite embrace of death? I just kind of chalked it up to being like cowboy nothing dialogue, you know, yeah. that it's just like, oh, you're thirsty. You're a cowboy. <laughs> Here you go. Yeah, because then the poison interpretation doesn't make sense because next Shatner does drink it. Now, I wasn't sure if at this point Shatner's character knows who Corbus is or knows that this is Corbus. Like, it was, I felt like this was a little bit vague because that's the thing. This is our evil cult leader in his most human cowboy form. Yeah, so he, I think he do, he knows there is a Corbus, but he doesn't realize this is Corbus. He's like, I will speak only to Corbus. And then Corbus says, I am Corbus, speak to me. And he gets right down to business. Uh, so Shatner wants his family back. He's like, give me my th- mother and father. And Borgnine says, did you bring the book? And Shatner says, I'm not afraid of you, Corbus, Corbus. And Mr. Uh, you know, Corbus says, Mr. Preston, I'd be very disappointed if you were. So they start kind of posturing at, at each other. You know, Shatner's like, you're evil. And Corbus is like, let me show you what I've put my faith in. And there's a great moment like, Shatner angles toward the camera and points his finger out. He's pointing straight into the camera and he says, Corbus, <laughs> um, he says, I'll face whatever you have behind those doors. And I guess he's talking about the church. He says, and I'll come out exactly as I went in. So, you know, after this kind of posturing, they eventually agree on on a, on a trial, a test, a challenge. Mark will go inside Corbus's boarded up church and face whatever's in there. And it'll be a test of faith. Corbus's faith against Mark's which I suppose is uh, mainline Christianity. And if if Mark prevails, Corbus will release his mother and father. If Corbus prevails, Mark will bring him the book. We don't Again, we don't know what this book is. It's just a book. Now, obviously, it is really early in the picture to just go all in on a bet against the chief antagonist. 
uh, it does not bode well for Mark here, <laughs> uh, where he's just like, all right, let's do it. Let's go. We, I think we can end this picture in the first half hour. Um, I'm putting my soul and everything on the line. Give me, give me your worst, Borg9. You can imagine that the next 45 minutes are eaten up with shots of them walking to the church. <laughs> but anyway, so they go into the church. Um, okay, let's describe it. So it is a satanic church. It is pews full of figures in black hoods and robes, uh, kind of an Omega Man-ish. I don't know which mm-hmm. movie came out first, but there are red and purple curtains, candles, a stone altar topped with an inverted cross and then draped with cloth that says Regi Satanus, and, and it's got a big pentacle. Uh, it, it, the the vibe is very incense books, just weird. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but also there is... <laughs> There are illustrations. So, like, there is a big stained glass window, which, okay, so this is a satanic church with a stained glass window. They actually commissioned that. I'm going to say the stained glass goat head needs some work. It does not look very scary. It looks like a sports mascot. Like, it could be the Chicago <laughs> Bulls logo. It does. It it does look a little sports mascotty, a little superhero-ish. And I don't know if the whole, it's it's white, too. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that has, if that's maybe due to the, uh, like, Levian Satanism influence, like this, uh, you know, sort of this idea of uh, Satan, Lucifer, the, the light bringer or something, or if, I don't know, it's just some sort of corticate design. But it stands out in a way that's maybe not completely uh, great. But, but the, I mean, the rest of the, the set looks really good, though. I think it's a nice, dark, atmospheric, uh, satanic chapel. Like if you were part of a satanic couple looking to get married, I this is a proper venue. I'd say go for it. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. We commit ourselves to evil uh, anew every day. And so, oh, they've even got a satanic organ. I thought that was funny with the pipes and the... Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So Shatner goes in. You know, he's still got his magic amulet and his gun, so I think he's feeling confident. And uh, Ernest Borgnine comes out. He's changed out of his cowboy outfit into a crimson robe, majestic satanic regalia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, long story short, they both start praying. Borgnine is praying to Satan. Shatner is praying to Jesus. And eventually, uh, you know, the, it kind of like it comes to a, to a, to a peak. And uh, Shatner gets freaked out because he sees his mother among the devil's congregation. And she has the mask face with the, with the black eyes. And, uh, you know, she, she's telling, you know, it's very joy in us. She says, you will know the peace of mind that I have found. And Shatner gets scared and he starts blasting with his gun. He shoots a cultist and multicolored goop comes out of him. It's like pink and green goop. And Borgnine has a very actually great moment. Again, Ernest Borgnine is just, you know, in a class above what this movie is. He, he has a great moment where he sort of scoffs at Shatner shooting the gun. He says, is that your faith? Mm-hmm. And Shatner runs outside. He still thinks the magical amulet will protect him. So he's holding it up and he says, I'm still free, Corbus, Corbus. And Borgnine uh uh, you know, he's even got a way around this. Borgnine makes him hallucinate that the amulet is actually a snake wrapped around his neck. So Shatner mm-hmm. willingly takes it off and throws it to the ground. Whoops. Yeah. And then just he sends in the, 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 the cultist to grab him and hold him down. Yeah. He says, soon the family name of Preston will be no more. And then from here, we cut to a different movie. Now we're in Scanners. Uh, though, to be <laughs> fair, this was before Scanners. <laughs> Yeah, we have to go to the uh, 
the cult research facility at the, the the nearest university, I believe. Yeah, I don't know where this what university this is supposed to be, but yeah, it's like a an academic uh, medical setting, and we see Joan Prather lying on a table, and uh, they say that she is consciously controlling uh, the rate of her heartbeat. So I guess we should describe the new characters we meet in this scene. We meet Eddie Albert as Doctor Sam Richards. We meet Tom Skerritt as Doctor Tom Preston, and Joan Prather as Julie Preston. And so they're like in a university auditorium. They're doing a demonstration of Julie's psychic powers. And there is a wonderful nonsense exchange. So the professor, Eddie Albert, says, uh, there is nothing subconscious that cannot be raised to the conscious level. And then a student goes, what about parapsychology, telepathy? professor says, yes, I include that extrasensory perception. And the student says, Dr. Preston, isn't there a danger that these experiments could interfere with normal brain activity? And Tom Skerritt says, no, no, no. We've studied many cases like this. There's no reason for concern. If there were, believe me, my wife would not be involved. So Dr. Richard says, you know, he said, yeah, there's no danger, only discovery, and that they are finally on the verge of discovering, quote, the brainwave pattern that signifies ESP activity. And so Julie's, I don't know, she's controlling her heartbeat and stuff, and she starts reporting her experience. She says it starts with a feeling of absolute calm, as if I were drifting into a perfect sleep. It sounds like she's kind of describing like a self-hypnosis or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she goes on and mentions a few more things, and then eventually... She starts seeing things. She says a funny change takes place. There are images and sounds, and she sees the Chicago Bulls logo. You know, it's the, it's the, <laughs> the, the goat face on the stained glass. And then she sees shirtless William Shatner being tortured, and she sees people in robes with torches, and she sees Ernest Borgnine in goat makeup, and she sees herself trapped behind glass being rained on. And she suddenly screams. She screams, Tom! And then Tom Skerritt runs up to her, and he says, Julie, something's happened to my family. <laughs> I I didn't understand this at all. Like, how does he know? She's the one who's psychic, He she and she hasn't told him yet. Yeah, this whole sequence is, is bonkers because it's, yeah, it's like, what's going on with her? How does he know it? The whole exchange, the, uh, it seems like she just has a general case of the, the paranormals. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and now she has been awakened to some sort of insight into what's going on with the cult. Certainly access to scenes from the film that we haven't, we haven't witnessed yet. Uh, so now we have new characters in on the hunt. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, 
personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So we cut to the desert. Tom, Julie, and Dr. Richards all go out to the desert to investigate. First, there is a scene with the sheriff, played by uh, Bat Guano, played by, by Keenan Wynn. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the sheriff's basically like, sorry, I can't help you. There's been a storm and we're still rescuing hundreds of people. And, uh, you're, you know, your folks were probably just killed in the storm. There's no chance they were turned into wax by an evil cult. Mm-hmm. So the police are not helping. You know, the Prestons are on their own. Uh, they check at the house to hear the story of what happened from the old man, John. He he describes the uh, the encounter from earlier. And then they find one clue on the ground. There is hardened wax out on the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah, and they just keep picking at it. Yeah. It's like, you um, don't know what that dripped from. Like, don't, don't get your hands all over that. That's true. Ugh, yeah. So so they go to Redstone. Uh, oh, meanwhile, there is a, there are scenes where William Shatner is being, like, sexy tortured by Ernest Borgnine. So he is yeah. shirtless and wrapped up in chains, and Borgnine's taunting him, saying, tell me where the book is. You gambled and you lost. Give me the book. And then Borgnine brings him, uh, oh, a vision of Lilith, the Queen of Delights, who's just like a lady who comes and kisses William Shatner. And then he's like, oh, ha, ha, it was actually your mother, and she still doesn't have eyes. (laughs) 
Tom Skerritt and Julie arrive in Redstone. They're looking around, checking everything out. Seems deserted. Uh, they they don't run into anybody at first. They go and investigate the Devil's Chapel and look all around in there. And then finally, when they're back outside, they get attacked by a cult member in a speeding car. And there's a big chase, and they run into a building, and they fight and wrestle. Uh, I think this is John Travolta, maybe? Yeah, I think this is Eilis John Travolta that they encounter. So they beat up John Travolta, tie him up, and then, then like, Julie looks into his non-eyes, and this unlocks a long flashback. Yeah, this takes us back 300 years and gives us the origin story of all this uh, cultic nonsense that's going on. So the short version is that Ernest Borgnine, Corbus, once ran a satanic cult in colonial New England, and one of his cult members betrayed him and stole a book in which they all wrote down the names of, of those who had pledged their souls to Satan. And Corbus wants the book back. He And there, in this sequence, there are uh, a lot of very funny, I don't know, what felt like overuse of these and thous. I, I'm not an expert on <laughs> archaic grammar, so maybe they were being used correctly, but it felt weird. So, you know, Borgnine's walking around this room full of people kind of cowering in fear, and he says, Didst one of thee fall from the favor of Lucifer? <laughs> yeah, so I get my loose understanding of all this is that like, he's the devil's man. He's he's maybe not even human. Uh, he brings satanic cultism to these various pilgrim folks. They get to enjoy the pleasures of the flesh and so forth. And then he's like, okay, now I'm going to take you to the hell uh, as per our original ar- arrangement. And then at least some of the cult members were like, it would really be great to not do that. We'd yes. rather not go to the hell. Uh-huh. So why don't we just steal that book that he wrote our names in, and then we can get by on a technicality. Right. Then he won't remember which of us got the pleasures of the flesh, I guess. Yes. <laughs> so he he just like can't recall who it was who wore shorts. Uh, or maybe he needs to produce documentary evidence to Satan in order to fulfill th- this end of the bargain. Like, you know, if you can't produce a copy of the contract, it might as well not exist. Yeah, I mean, lot lawful evil. Oh, and one of these uh, one of these ancient you know colonial times guys is William Shatner, and I guess this is uh, was Shatner Martin Fife, the guy who Borgnine keeps saying this name without explaining what it means. Yeah, like I guess it's one of these things where everyone we see here that's not Ernest Borgnine, like their descendants, just happen to look like them, as, as is sometimes the case with movies, and uh-huh. certainly with damned bloodlines and so forth. And, um, of course, as far as William, I mean, as far as Ernest Borgnine's uh, Corvus is concerned, uh, he's not really a human entity anyway. So he can come back later and look just like himself. No problem. Right. So they eventually revealed that I think it was it was Aranessa, the wife of Martin Fife, played by Shatner. Uh, she is the one who stole the book and she has brought an angry pitchfork mob led by the Reverend Claudio Brooke. Yes. <laughs> And they capture all the Satanists and and burn them. And so they're they're burning uh, Ernest Borgnine. And he oh he's great in the scene. He's like mm-hmm. on the stake laughing. He says, "Think ye to destroy something stronger than life?" <laughs> uh, oh, and there there was a moment where, unless I heard this wrong, I think Claudio Brooks says um, he says you are condemned because of your heinous crimes that you committed. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so, uh, oh, 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 this is also Martin Fife and Aranessa are betrayed by Claudio Brooks. So I think she had made a deal with him. She's like, hey, 
you know, I reveal the existence of the satanic cult. I tell you who they are and where to find them. Uh, and I, and I hand over the, the book or I keep, I don't know, I take away the book. I don't know if she gave him the book, but, uh, to reveal the cult and that her husband would be spared and nope, Claudio Brooke goes back on his word. He's like, you're all going to burn. Sorry. But I think Corbis sent a kid off through a secret passageway with the book or something. The book gets away and, of course, and becomes this whole plot line. Why do the Prestons have the book? I forget. what. How do they end up with the book? Why doesn't Corbis have it? I think it's like the family secret. Like, hey, guess what? Our entire family line, our entire bloodline going back 300 years is actually damned. But as long as the forces of Satan don't get this book, then it's like we're not damned. So just make sure that nobody comes asking around for the book. Better put it beneath the floorboards. But physically, how did the Preston family end up with it? I think they do maybe say in the movie, but I forgot what. I don't understand how that happened. I I do not know. Okay. All right. So they've got the book for some reason. Corbus has wanted it back for hundreds of years. Finally, he's got them. And he is going to sexy torture uh, William Shatner until he gives him the book. Mm-hmm. And back in the present, uh, so, you know, they've seen all this. So Tom Skerritt sends Julie off to, uh, I don't know, what, oh, get the sheriff or something. Uh, and Tom Tom goes back. Uh, so he's watching the procession of Satan's minions. They're like walking through the hills carrying <laughs> torches. Is and this, now, he, does he sneak in yet or is that later? No, this is where he okay. sneaks in. He, okay, because. Because as we all know, to infiltrate any kind of cultic activity, all you need to do is put a robe on and nobody will notice. Right. He sneaks in. They don't notice that he still has eyeballs. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He kind of sneaks in with them to witness the Black Mass. And uh, this is where we see Ernest Borgnine in goat makeup. So he's got shaggy hair now and a billy goat beard and big old ram's horns. Uh, I guess, I don't know if they're ram's horns, goat horns, whatever, horns. And, uh, and... I don't know, comments on goat form? Oh, just that, you know, it's it's a good look. I like the the makeup effects, but you're just, you're inhibiting Ernest Borgnine's acting ability by covering up that expressive face of his even a little bit. Well, they bring out shirtless Shatner and he is transformed into another mask face. They give him the, the black cloth eyes. And so, yeah, he's one of them now against his will. And I think we see Anton LaVey in the background in the scene. He's wearing a, like a gold helmet that actually looks a lot like the motorcycle helmets in Psychomania. It, it is reminiscent of that. Um, we should also mention when we start seeing the the the, ha- the eyeless Shatner here, um, this, of course, will remind some folks of um, the mask from Halloween. Hmm. And at least they're I don't think it's hard to really figure this out i don't think ultimately that people are making a case that that cast originates from this film but i think that has been uh claimed in the past so i'm not exactly sure what picture the shatner cast comes from that ultimately becomes the michael myers mask but at least some folks have pointed to this film as a possible origin point certainly when you see eyeless william shatner his face turned into a flesh mask it does bring to mind michael myers a little bit that's a really good point, and I can see it there, yeah. Anyway, for some reason, Tom Skerritt gets caught. Maybe he sees his mother or something, but the big fight breaks out. He kind of has to blast his way out of there. He runs off and escapes. Uh, meanwhile, Julie is captured by the cultists. And so the final act is the showdown. Uh, Tom mm-hmm. goes back and meets with Dr. Richards, 
and they try to figure out what's going on. They've got the book now and they're like looking, they're like reading the book and trying to figure out the lore and they read things like, I condemn thy soul to the devil's reign. What is the devil's reign? We don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, and we, we might never know. We, right. we get some we get some additional evidence, but uh, the jury's still out. Right. Well, OK, so let's get to the part with this. So they go back to the town and they go to the chapel. Julie is being inducted into the cult out in the wilderness. They go into the chapel while it's empty. They find like a like a manhole to hell in the chapel. Is that how you understood it? Yeah, yeah. Basically, they. And this Tom Skerritt's character has been here before, and just like they didn't search anything uh, at all. I guess yeah. uh, this time they do uncover this weird well uh, that, uh, yeah, maybe goes to hell. Who knows? But in it, it has this bizarre artifact that I guess looks like a. Uh, what is this? A, like a large vase with a golden goat head on it. It's like an orb that contains a television. And mm-hmm. the show, there's like an oval screen that is showing you a TV show. And what's on the show is a bunch of people standing in the rain and screaming and saying, let me out. And then on top of the TV, the orb shaped TV, there is a golden goat head. And then they refer to this, the object as the devil's reign. I'm guessing this, the best I can do is that if you become a satanic cultist serving Corbus, your body becomes a wax body. Because your soul has left your real body and your soul is now in some sort of a rainy nether realm that is contained within this artifact. And it has a screen so people can like watch what's happening. In yeah. That. So you can yeah. you know, count and keep track of the souls that are inside it, I guess. Yeah. OK. Uh, OK. So here's the yeah, the big showdown. So they find this. I think uh, Dr. Richards runs off with this artifact. I don't remember what he's planning to do with it, but there's a, a showdown in the church where. Uh, Tom Skerritt confronts them and they're trying to rescue Julie and there's a big fight. And in the end, the guy who saves the day is Dr. Richards, the pseudoscientist here <laughs> comes out mm-hmm. and he's like, uh, he's like, I've got the devil's reign and I defeat you. And he smashes it. Oh, and, no, no. That's not how it goes down. No, it's he, not. OK. Dude. OK, because he has it and he's like, I'll smash it. And then Corvus is like, get that from this old fool. And so they grab it from him. The Shatner's character grabs it. That's and, right. That's right. But then the doc says, uh, he, he's uh, what, what's Shatner's uh, character's Mark. name? Yeah. Mark. He's like, Mark, you don't have to do this. Mark, you can end all this suffering. And somehow he gets through uh-huh. to uh, the possessed Shatner and he smashes it. And then that does, I'm not exactly sure what, it releases their souls from the devil's rain, the object, and makes them susceptible to melting in the rain because it then starts to actually rain from the sky. And here we get to the most famous scene in the movie, uh, the great melting, the final meltdown. I think we need to do a whole little subsection here devoted to the final meltdown. So the cultists, it starts to rain when that happens, and the cultists all melt, and they melt and melt and melt and melt and melt and melt. And my memory from the last time I saw I saw this movie holds so strong. The melting is interminable in mm-hmm. a way that took me through a whole series of reactions as it went on. At first, I was like, ah, oh, this is weird. And I was greatly enjoying it. Then I started to get bored. Then I started <laughs> to get annoyed. Then I came full circle and became just just infilled with with respect and admiration for the relentlessness of the great melt 
Yeah, I remember basically how everything goes down pacing wise. So I knew that once people started melting, this is what the film was now. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and that I should just roll with it and find enjoyment in it. And, and you know, enjoy the various details of, um, you know, of robed cultists melting out of their eyeballs, falling and then melting more of 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 goat headed Corbus melting as he struggles with somebody there on the altarpiece. Yeah, um, there is. Yeah, it just melt a melting masterpiece. If you like people melting in the multicolored goo, no other film will do it for you like this. Oh, and then there's there's sort of a stinger, right? So we think all the cultists mm-hmm. melt, including Ernest Borgnine. He melts. He kind of like retains his form somewhat as he melts. So he doesn't just turn into goo. He like his face becomes huge and kind of stretches and stuff. With, yeah, with, like, bulging eye looks very gross, and then kind of like topples over into the hell well. Yeah, and flames shoot up. Uh, yeah. So we're not. We, we're sort of. We think. Okay, I guess he's out of it. I think he's defeated. Oh, but then we see like a hand come back up, but then the church Mm -hmm. explodes. So maybe he is defeated after all. Mm -hmm. But then we, at the end, Julie and uh, Tom are hugging and it's like, oh, we made it through. But then it's like revealed that maybe this is a glamour. And in fact, Julie is Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, we get that this scene where it's it's Ernest Borgnine that is uh, is hugging Tom Skerritt's character. And uh, he gives us this evil grin. And then we cut to that screen on the devil's rain, that object, that urn or whatever it is. And who's trapped in there in the rain realm? Who's screaming? But Julie. And as the credits roll, she like keeps screaming. And then there's this like really haunting moment where she stops and she's just kind of like staring out through the screen at us, the viewer. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a creepy moment. Okay, do we need to do a dump of lore-related questions here? Because we still don't know exactly. What is the deal with the Devil's Reign? Oh, there's so many questions. I mean, yeah, what, what's with the, why does your body become wax? Yeah. Uh, we do see some sort of like burning of a wax effigy. So I guess there's some sort of loose connection there. But uh-huh. I don't know why your body becomes wax. I don't know why you don't have eyes. Um, I don't know why we call this artifact the devil's rain. I don't know that the rain that melts waxy Satanists, is this the devil's rain as well? Or is this like the, the, the divine rain? I'm not sure. And then even like devil's rain, what does that mean? I was like doing some searches and I found some just off uh, allusions to the devil's reign in some pre-existing literature, like once in some sort of religious poem and maybe as a turn of phrase talking mm. about like a really heavy rain. So, but, but nothing that where I was like, oh, well, this is clearly what one should in- infer from the, the words, the devil's reign. So the devil's reign is the orb that has the soul TV inside it. And when they smash it, it suddenly starts raining from the sky. So, like, the orb is not literally rain. There is literal rain, but nobody ever calls that the devil's rain. And mm-hmm. that rain melts the devil's devotees. Right. Which, of yeah. course, doesn't also, it also doesn't make sense. Why would rain melt wax? Rain doesn't melt wax. Right. Rain, if anything, should solidify wax that's melting. And again, they, they already have liquid wax in them, which you see when they are shot. So, that's um, right. Well, also, it's a, Complete dream logic. Why did the dude at the beginning melt? The house, the Steve mm-hmm. shows up at the house and he's just melting. Like they hadn't smashed the devil's reign, the object at that point. I All I can think of is like it's the ultimate melt movie and you want to give them a taste of what they're going to stick around for. 
<laughs> if okay. they watch the full film because uh, i think some of the trailer i think even the trailer we listened to they're like you've got to see the the finale to this picture uh-huh. um, don't leave this one early you can come late but don't leave early okay rob if i give you the job of being the canon master of the devil's reign you are now the sole editor of the devil's reign wikia <laughs> can can you make sense? Uh, try to try to just spell out the lore for me. How does the Devil's Reign work? Uh, I mean, as best I can tell, is you know we we went through the part already where like you know Satan has a deal for you. You pledge your soul to him, get those earthly delights, uh, and then Corvus will take you to the hell. Uh-huh. But three hundred years ago, the coldest say, okay, well we've had the earthly delights. We don't want to go to the hell. Let's just keep that magic book out of Corvus's hands, and then he can't take us to the hell. Uh-huh. Um, but then, you know, then we get the, the witch hunters show up. Things get disrupted, uh, and then the Preston family is able to make off with the book. Okay. Um, so at some point, though, Corvus is going to catch wind of them again. He's uh, aided by eyeless wax servants, while the souls of these people are trapped inside that kind of soul repository that we keep calling the devil's reign. The cultists make another go at keeping the book from Corbus. Ultimately, they end up having the opportunity to destroy the devil's reign object, and this causes Corbus and his followers to melt in the rain, the actual weather event rain. Uh-huh. But it doesn't completely work as Corbus survives, takes on the guise of Joan Preston, seduces Tom Skerritt's character, and Joan winds up trapped in the devil's reign. And then I guess the search for the book continues, or maybe there's nobody left yeah. to just search for the book. The Preston family is destroyed, but I don't know if he gets to take anybody other than Joan to hell at this point. Wait, I think you're mixing up the actress and the character's names. It's Julie Preston, right? I'm sorry, Julie Preston. Joan played by Prather. Joan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe Julie is the only Preston that gets to go to hell. Maybe everyone else got to escape their damnation. That's my best bet. That's all I got. <laughs> Ultimately, though, the real hero is parapsychology, <laughs> ESP, and telepathy uh, in the form of Dr. Richards here. Yeah, the, the, the Dr. Richards survived and, and probably published some papers on this. That's right. Um, and, uh, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a whole sequel that never was uh, out there in which he studies uh, the, the artifact, the devil's reign. He, like, you know, glues it back together again. Or I guess it was never destroyed because she's still stuck in it. Proved the existence of the devil's reign once and for all. Yeah, so I don't recommend trying to make sense of, uh, of any of this. But um, as just a, an illogical 1970s weird satanic horror spectacle, um, I think it's, it's very engaging. I respect the way that the collar of Tom Skerritt's shirt is on the outside of the collar of his jacket. That's... <laughs> That, that thumbs up from me. Well, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Do you have an analysis on what's happening in the devil's reign? Uh, do you have some clarity on on the theology of this movie? Uh, we would we'd love to hear from you if you do. If you have memories of seeing this uh, in the theater or the drive-in back in the day, or catching it on television in chunks like like I did, and wondering what in the world am I watching? Uh, yeah, right in. We'd love to hear from you. Just a reminder that Weird House Cinema, that's our Friday episode. Um, 
when we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. But we're primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Core, uh, those are our core episodes. And then uh, on Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact episode. On Mondays, we do listener mail. And if you want a complete list of all the movies that we've covered on Weird House Cinema, well, you can go to letterbox.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. We have a, a user um, name on there. It's Weird House. And we have a list of all the movies, movies we've covered. And sometimes there's a peek ahead at what we're covering the following week. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.